Yivamos, Perig Yud, Mishnah Aleph, 10.1, we now begin the 10th chapter of Maseches Yivamos. And the case of this first Mishnah is a scenario where you have a woman who is married to her husband, we'll call him Mr. A, and then Mr. A goes missing. And then a single witness comes and testifies that Mr. A died. And based on that testimony, the woman remarries Mr. B. And lo and behold, after a time, Mr. A comes back on the scene. So what happens? So, as far as the Doraisa rules would apply, a woman who has an affair becomes forbidden to her husband. But that's only where she has that affair on intentionally. She cheats on her husband. So then she becomes forbidden both to her husband um, and to the paramour, to the, as the Mishnah says, or the Chazal say, both to Baala and Boala, both to the, the husband and the, the adulterer. Now, if it was, however, not done baraton, she wasn't willfully infidelitous. She thought she was permitted to remarry, and she did. So then she's either a shogig or maybe even an onus, depending on the scenario. It's a circumstance that's beyond her control, or at least she wasn't willful in her infidelity. And therefore, Midoraisa, she should be entitled to go back to her first husband. She's not forbidden to him, and um, and they could, you know, resume, notwithstanding the unpleasantries. Now, the thing is that when it comes to normal devarm erva, matters regarding um, marriages and divorces, so the rule is you always need two witnesses. That means two kosher witnesses um, to effect, let's say, a kedushin, a marriage, or, an asu, or a gitin, a divorce, and so on. Now, Chazal were concerned, the rabbis were concerned that a woman might find herself in this scenario quite frequently where her husband disappears, we don't know what happened to him, and now she is trapped for the rest of her life as an aguna. Aguna means that she is, you know, doesn't know the fate of her husband, therefore she can't remarry anybody else. Or, through the zina, she knows the fate of her husband, but she's she's trapped because the husband hasn't divorced her, so then she still can't marry anybody else. So because the Chazal were afraid that would be a ongoing common problem, a relatively common problem, they arranged matters that she could rely even on one witness. That's highly unusual, but uh, given the terrible situation of a woman being in Aguna, the rabbis um, found a work around for this leniency. Now, to make this work, it's based, to rely on one witness, there's two um, premises that have to be in effect. The first is, there's a general principle that exists in you know, jurisprudence, general halacha, that a person wouldn't lie if his lie is going to come out eventually and be revealed, and he therefore is going to have his his name besmirched and his you know reputation destroyed. And that's certainly the case with someone who's supposedly dead. I mean, eventually he comes, he's, he'll come back. And when he comes back, the person reported he had died will be shown to be a liar, and that'll ruin a person's reputation. And therefore, the assumption is a person wouldn't lie about such a thing. That's the first thing. So that gives um, extra credence and weight to the single witness who's testifying regarding the death of this Mr. A. Now, second of all, the rabbis, what they did is they put, they shifted the, the burden of confirming the veracity of this person's death onto the, the woman, the wife. Since so she obviously is the one who really has everything to gain and lose from this question, the rabbis said, listen, it's your responsibility to, to confirm that really your husband died to the extent that it's possible. And... Um, if you don't, the stakes are extremely high. And by setting the stakes extremely high, we're saying, listen, 
you know, you're going to be in a, you better be darn certain that your husband really is dead if you remarry a second man. Because um, if you don't, um, you know, the consequences are truly dire, even in Olam Hazet. So by raising the bar very high in terms of the consequences, they shift the burden on her, and now they made, like, they rely on the fact that the woman has such a strong reason to ensure and be confident that her first husband is gone, and that will allow her to rely on the testimony of the single witness in order to remarry. That being the case, our mission is basically in a detail how the rabbis said in all sorts of um, rabbinic uh, enactments, penalties, etc., to, to say, listen, if you're wrong and your husband still is alive and you've now married the second man, so you know you, you have a lot to lose, a great deal to lose. And the basic crux of the Mishnah is going to be, therefore, that the benefits of the ksuba, the benefits, the rights that a woman um, gains from her ksuba are lost, they're sort of annulled. And that being the case, the woman will certainly think twice before she uh, marries the second man. As we'll see later in the Mishnah, it's not really punitive. We shouldn't think of it as like the Chazal wanted to punish this woman for sort of being you know, a cavalier and marrying the second man without confirming the facts, and then she can only do what she can do. That you'll see the basic point of the mission is we're saying her ksuba is lost, um, and therefore, um, actually, there'll be some some uh, penalty, you know, some loss to the husband as well, the Mister A as well. Um, but again, the, the point isn't really to punish anybody. The point here is we're saying the ksuba essentially and its and the rights and benefits it confers um, is annulled. In that way, the woman who really is the primary beneficiary of the ksuba um, has a great incentive to ensure her first husband really is no longer alive. Okay? That being the case, the Mishnah says, Ha'isha, Shahalach Ba'alala Medina Sayyam. You have a woman whose husband goes to Medina Sayyam. He goes overseas. And the truth is, it doesn't matter where he goes. If you could just go to the, you know, to the, to his, to his office in the Twin Towers next door, it doesn't make a difference where he goes. The point is, he went somewhere and now he's disappeared. But of course, the usual case is he went, you know, far away, so we can't find him. And he doesn't come back, so the woman's now stuck. Uva uva amrula, and then people come, or even one witness comes, and tells her, Mezbalech, your husband has died. If it's one witness, of course, they'll take him to the Bezdin. She can't just remarry based on one person's you know, testimony, but the Bezdin will scrutinize and ascertain that the testimony is acceptable and true. And based on that acceptable testimony from a single person, we will let her remarry. If she does remarry, Venissa says the Mishnah, and then Mr. A, after she marries Mr. B, Mr. A, the first husband, and really in truth, halakhly speaking, the only husband, because the second marriage is not a marriage in retrospect. You can't get married if you're already married. So the husband shows up back on the scene. So what happens to her? So now the Mishnah will detail the consequences, again, based on this point that we're saying that the consequences are steep, ensuring, therefore, that we can rely on her to be very confident that he wasn't here in the first place. So here we go. What are the consequences? First of all, she has to separate, be divorced, can't live with, or can't stay married to neither Mr. A nor Mr. B. Mr. B because it's not her husband, right? Um, and the general rule is, of course, if you have a infidelous relationship, you can't be stay with your the paramour, um, the adulterer. Um, but also, Mr. A also can't stay married to her. Now, really, on a derived level, like I said before, they should be able to stay married, but we're making her without any husband to ensure that, um, you know, the stakes are very high, and therefore she doesn't do this in the first place unnecessarily. More than that, Utsricha get mizeh She'll need a get from both of the husbands, A and B. A, she needs a get on a derived level, of course, because 
this was her husband, then she can't marry a third person, a second person, another person, um, until the first husband gives her a get to sever that marriage. As far as the second husband goes, the truth is, technically, Midoraisa, no get should be required, since she couldn't... The, we see in retrospect that second marriage was a, was a farce. Surely it was a married woman. You can't get married a second time if you can get a get from the first husband. So therefore, the second marriage is not a marriage, and therefore, a get should not be required. But... Because all we're concerned that people get confused what's going on over here, um, and although it's kind of far-fetched that people wouldn't be able to make sense of it all, and we're concerned people just will come to wrong consumptions and therefore assume that she was you know, married to the second man and didn't get a get and so on, and therefore keep things neat, we make sure she gets a get from the second man as well, Midrabanan. Moreover, Ve'enla Ksuba, she has no Ksuba, this is referring to the the Iker Ksuba, meaning those like 200 Zuz she would have got if she was, this is her first marriage, um, she loses that. Veloperos, um, she also um, doesn't get essentially both of being reimbursed from any peros that were taken from her. What that means is a woman who comes to marriage, she brings nichse malug, she brings property which the husband has what's called usufruct rights, right? He's allowed to get the benefit of collecting the rent of the apartment building she built, she brought to the marriage, um, or shearing the sheep of the flock she brought into the marriage while they're married. And if they get divorced, she gets the apartment building back or she gets the sheep back. And it's sort of her problem. If the apartment is appreciated or depreciated, that's her good or bad luck. Same goes for the flock of sheep. If there are more or fewer sheep, that's, again, her good or bad luck. The peros meaning the benefits of the of the property. Now, the point here is that if the husband, you know, took, you know, collected the rent of her apartment, she cannot get reimbursed for that, even though he wasn't in right to do it. So she won't get she won't get reimbursed for the peros. That's the point here. Velo mazonos. Similarly, she's not entitled to be supported by either husband. Um, and more than that, of course, she can't be supported by someone who's not her husband. She, she can't demand to be fed by either of these people now because they're getting divorced um, and not supposed to be married anymore. But more than that, if, let's say, when her first husband was away, she rang up a tab at the local you know, grocery store. So normally a husband would be required to pay that bill when he comes back because a husband's required to provide for Mazonos for his wife. The, but but uh, in this case, since we're saying that she's losing the benefits of the Xuba, so... The husband, Mr. A, let's say, cannot be forced to pay the bill that she rung up at the grocery store. Vlobalaos, and also, um, if her property she brought into the marriage gets worn out, so then she actually, then she kind of suffers the loss. So the usual case of that would be, let's say she brought Malug, she brought, you know, like a, a blanket into the marriage, it was worth $100 and she brought it in, the blanket got worn out, just as if the our apartment building she brought in and got worn out um so when she goes back then normally the problem is that she uh, she would suffer the loss but the point here is even more than that if we're talking about nechse tzon barzel uh property that she was supposed to get like a we appraised it at the time that she got into the marriage she was supposed to be like a locked in value so she couldn't lose from the principal so if the apartment building is worth a million bucks when she got married to him um even if you know at the time of the divorce, the apartment, you know, has depreciated into worth, you know, $800,000. It's not her problem. He pays the full million. Now we're saying um, she suffers the loss of whatever wars out. Lo alze, she can claim none of these things, like the benefits of Ksuba, um, neither from the Mr. A nor Mr. B. More than that, if she managed to collect, let's say she collected her Ksuba from her first husband, thinking he was dead, um, and then turns out that he wasn't. She'd have to return it. Same goes for the second husband. Um, worth pointing out, if she actually got divorced in the second husband and got paid her ksuba, like all before the first husband showed up on the scene, we don't make a return what she got. Now, worse than that, 
the offspring from these now forbidden relationships have the status of being a mamzer. So what do we speak this out? As far as the child that came from Mr. B, so of course she was married to Mr. A, she had a child with Mr. B, that's your you know textbook mamzer. So of course the child's a mamzer. The point of the Kiddush of the Mishnah here is in, in addition, if when Mr. A comes back, they get back together and they have a child. So that was forbidden because the rabbi is saying they have to get divorced. So therefore, even though Midoraisa, they're married and therefore the child should, the child should not be a mamzer on a Doraisa level, we're treating it as a mamzer on a Durabana level. So they shouldn't get back together. Um, that's pretty remarkable. And, um, and more than that, just so you should know, being a mamzer on a Durabana level is, is a terrible thing. Even being a mamzer is bad enough. But as a mamzer midurabanan, that means rabbinically you're not allowed to marry into the main population of the Jewish people. But it also means that since really on a Doraisa level you're not a mamzer, you can't marry the people that mamzerim could usually marry. Meaning a mamzer could usually marry another mamzeris, um, or a, they could marry, you know, converts, they could marry psuidaka, and, and all these things in the previous prakim, you know. Um, so. This person really on a derived level is not a mamzer, so they actually can't marry a mamzeris, etc. Um, so therefore, the poor mamzer derabanan is limited to just two possibilities: either marrying another mamzer derabanan, obviously rather a hard thing to find, um, or a, a, a ger or gioris, a convert. The mamzer could the mamzer could marry, and a non-mamzer could marry, and therefore, whether it's both derived or derabanan, this child could marry a convert. Okay. Neither Mr. A nor Mr. B can become Tame for her. This is if Mr. A or Mr. B were Kohanim. So the rule is that a Kohen is forbidden Midorais to become Tame to be exposed to Dafka, specifically corpse Tuma, you know, Tame Mace. Um, the exception being that to bury the one of his seven relatives, meaning his mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter, or wife, the Kohen is allowed to become Tami, and in fact has a mitzvah to become Tami to participate in their burial. But this woman, since, although it's his wife, Mr. A's wife, um, since the rule is that a woman who's forbidden to a Kohen in his in her lifetime is also, he's forbidden to become Tami for her after her death. So we're treating this woman that way, and therefore um, Mr. A cannot become Tami um, for her burial. It goes without saying Mr. B can't become Tami if he's a Kohen because they were never married in the first place, really. Okay. Now, this is, these, this part of the Mishnah is, we're shifting focus now from what she is losing to what he is losing. This is very important, I think, on a Hashkafic level, because, as I kind of said in the beginning, you could feel that the rabbis are out to sort of punishing this woman, um, for not doing a good job as she could in terms of, in terms of ascertaining that her first husband was dead. That's not really what's happening here. What's happening here is we're saying the whole, you know, that's part of what's, what's happening is we're saying the consequences are severe, you lose your ksuba, and part of the severity is that, you know, the, the, the chips fall where they may. But here you see from the next, these cases in the Mishnah, that the husband also loses the benefits that a ksuba confers. So you see, it's not that we're out to get this woman and punish her, per se. Here are effective losses, economic losses, that really are losses to the husband, and really then therefore sort of benefits to the to the wife. So the first here is, that the husband, neither A nor B, is Zoha to her Mitsyasa, things she finds. So if this woman, normally if a woman is married and she finds $100 on the floor, the rule is, the lacha is, Midurabanan, that her husband gets it. The reason why is because you don't want the husband to sort of be resentful of her, Eva, he shouldn't resent her, be angry at her, um, you know, and then have ill will, and that ill will would translate into, you know, marital friction. To avoid that, we say, listen, 
the husband's supporting her, doing his best. If she finds something, it goes into the family, you know, the family budget. It's, it's, you know, not hers, uh, not hers to keep. While that's true, here we're saying, since we're saying the benefits of the ksuba are not there, and we want, we are happy to have Ava. We don't mind if there's friction, enmity between the husband and wife here. We want them to get divorced. Therefore, if she finds something, she can keep it. So here you see, if she um, had the situation happen to her, then she finds the lottery ticket and becomes a millionaire. So she's the winner. Um, and the husbands are the losers, effectively. Um, and that's that's fine, because we want them to be resentful, and we want them to split up. So you see the point I was making before, is you see that this is, this isn't, this is not a punishment to her. It's not a punishment to anybody, really. It's just the consequences of saying the ksuba and the normal marital, you know, economic relationship is being dissolved here. Same goes with masa yadeha. He, neither A nor B, is entitled to her her production, what she she makes, literally the works of her hands. So the normal rule is that a woman typically is supported by her husband. She gets what's called mazonos, right? Like food and shelter, etc. And the deal is that she's expected, if she works, she's expected to take her earnings and apply them back to the family budget. You know, they go towards her, her room and board as well. A woman in general is entitled to sort of waive that. She can say, listen... I'm the breadwinner in the family. I don't need you to provide me with mizonos, um, but what I earn is mine to keep. It's not yours, dear husband. She's allowed to do that. She'd be entitled to make that story. So here we're saying, um, since he, the husband, is not required to provide any more mizonos for her, he doesn't have to feed her anymore, as the mission said before. So therefore, she is not required to give masyadeha, you know, the, her production, what she what she makes or earns, to him. She keeps it for himself for herself. And again, you see that that she's the beneficiary of this part of the dissolving of the marital economic relationship. Um, and also, Velob Bahafaras Ndareha, he is no longer entitled to um, annul her vows. Normally the rule is if a husband hears that his wife made a, a neder, a vow, uh, which either A, is somehow an inui for her, like it's got to do with um, inui nefesh, she is self-affliction. So she says, I'm not going to eat for a month. So he can say, no, yes, you are going to eat for a month. He can annul that vow when he hears about it on that day. Um, or same goes, if she makes a, a ned, there's some kind of a vow that's shebena levena, that somehow messes up or impacts the relationship that he has with her. So she says, you know, whatever, you know, whatever. I'm not, I'm not coming home on Thursday nights. We're not sleeping in the same bedroom as you or something like that. He can say, no, nothing doing. He can annul that vow. Um, meaning in contrast, if she just says, you know, I'm never riding with blue ink again, or, you know, whatever, my husband's at work, I'm going to go, I'll take a netter to go to the, the children's hospital and read books to, you know, cancer patients or something, he can't object to that because it doesn't mess him up in any way. But things that would mess him up or make her somehow unattractive or unappealing to him, he can annul. So the point is, the reason for that is because we don't want them to have a bad relationship. But since in this scenario here of our Mishnah, we want them to have a bad relationship, we want the divorce to happen, etc., them to split up, therefore he's not entitled to annul to Hafaris Nadarim for her Nadarea because we want them to split up. We don't care if he finds her unappealing. More than that, the Mishnah says, Hi Sabas Yisrael, if she were a regular Jew, and the truth is that's not the point. The Mishnah will say three cases, Bas Yisrael, Bas Levi, and Bas Cohen. So we're just for parallelism, we see here, Hi Sabas Yisrael, but any Jewish girl, no matter who she was, Nifsla Mina Kahuna, since she participated in an adulterous relationship, even unwittingly, and this is always the case, unwittingly if a woman is infidelitous, so she gets a stand and participates in any forbidden relationship, even you know, not intentionally. 
um, or not willfully, it doesn't matter. She gets the status of what's called a zona, and the zona is forbidden for a Kohen to marry, so she becomes psula, invalidated from marrying a Kohen after this. So her third husband, so to speak, Mr. C, can't be a Kohen. More than that, Ubas Levi Minamaser. If she had been part of a Levi family, or married to a Levi for that matter, um, she no longer can eat Miser. This is Miser Rishon. This mission is going like Rabbi Meir Shit, that we saw before previously in the previous parak, um, that Rabbi Meir at least holds that you only a Levi can eat from Miser Rishon. The Allah is not like that. Allah is like the Chum that anybody can eat from Miser Rishon. It's just that a Levi has the financial uh, you know, benefit of Miser Rishon. So the point is this mission would not be a Halach over here, but in our Aratana, the Reb Meir holds that she can't eat Meiser anymore because she has the status of a Zona, and we equated the halachas of Meiser to Truma, as we said previously, based on a Pasuk. Uvas Kohen mina Truma. If she had been part of a Kohenic family, she becomes now forevermore invalidated from Truma. That's old news. We saw a woman who was inv- invalidated by some relation like this. Can't eat Truma ever again, so that's, that's happening here too. Okay. Literally the words mean neither Mr. A nor Mr. B's heirs inherit her ksuba. But this is, we said there's no ksuba, so that wouldn't be literally the case. The case of our Mishnah is there's a, a rule that applies um, to marriages and that is in the ksuba called benin dechren. Benin dechren is Aramaic for male offspring. And that's what it means. And it's a it's a takana chachamim. The rabbi said, listen, if a woman comes into a marriage and she has like a co-wife, so this man has two wives. So the stuff that she brings, she brings her ancestral, you know, home into the marriage um, as part of her whatever in the ksuba. So when she dies, her husband inherits from her. That's the rule. But when the husband dies, the benedichman clause says that it's only her offspring that inherit that ancestral home meaning her co-wife's, the other wife's children don't get any of it. That's a normal rule. That what she brings in goes to her issue, not to, like, you know, the general pool of, of the estate. So we're saying that is now being waived. So if there is, if she dies in the story, and then her husband, Mr. A, inherits from her, so then her assets just go into a general pool where all of his heirs, you know, inherit equally. There's no preference, of, you know, priority given to her offspring over his other children that didn't come from her. V'imesu, if Mr. A and Mr. B die, Achiv shel zeva, Achiv shel zeh, Cholten b'lob yabmin, she needs to, and they die without children, and he offspring, so then she needs to do chalitza b'naivim with both brother-in-laws from Mr. A's brother-in-law and Mr. B's brother-in-law. Now really, um, on a derice level, she should be allowed to do yibum with Mr. A's brother, because she was married and he died with no issue, but we're treating him, her, as if she's sort of married to Mr. B also, because she needs to get from him, etc. Therefore, we're not allowing Yibam to happen, only Chalitza. As far as Mr. B's brother-in-law, well, she never was really married to him, so therefore Chalitza should not be required at all, but for the same reason we require a get, we require a Chalitza, since people could get confused on what's happening here. We want to make sure that everything is neat and clear, so therefore we require at least a Chalitza from Mr. B's brother as well. Now, okay, that's like sort of the end of the main part of the Mishnah. Now we'll have a few shitas in the other Tanaim, each Das Yachid, who, uh, like a sole opinion, who disagrees with the main Mishnah we said before. The Allah will be like what we said up to now, but these are other opinions um, of how things should work. First, you have Riyosi Shita. Riyosi Omer, Ksubasa al-Nikhsei Ba'ala Harishon. Riyosi says, wait a second. This woman did nothing wrong. 
she did her best, and, you know, whatever. She was misled by that first witness who came. And that being the case, why should we punish her? Should be enti- she should be entitled to her ksuba, from the first husband at least. Um, that's his position, um, but the Allah does not like him, for reasons we explained before. Then we have Rabbi Al-Lazar. His sheet is Rabbi Lazar Mar Omer Harishon Zakab Mitziasov Masi Adelva Faras Rabbi Elazar's shita is, in principle, why should he lose out on anything? Mr. A. Mr. A did nothing wrong. You know, when he came back, he should still be entitled to the benefits that marriage conferred to him. We're just going to sort of penalize her. That's Rabbi Elazar's position. And that being the case, he should be entitled to Mitsiyasa. If she finds that he should be able to keep it, Masiyada, like the income she has, he should be able to keep. And Hafaras Nare should be entitled to be made for, uh, annul her vows. But, Allah doesn't like him. Allah is like I said before. He can't have any of those things. And finally, Rabbi Shimon Omer, a few things. Rabbi Shimon says, first of all, Bi'asa o chalitzasa me'achav shalrishin poteres which I'm not going to translate yet. What he, Rabbi Shimon holds is that the brother of Mr. A, if Mr. A dies childless, should be able to do yibim or chalitza. Yibim should be acceptable. Um, because why not? They were married and like then he died, and like why should he lose out? Why should the whole thing doesn't make any sense exactly? They're married, and the rules of yibum should kick in, um, and therefore he says he could do yibum more chalitza, and he even brings it so much just to emphasize his point and say if the brother does yibum more chalitza with this woman, then the other co-wives are free to go because it's a bona fide yibum, everything's good. So that's his his opinion in contrast to the Tanakama who held that only chalitza is an option. Um, Halakha is like Tanakam, but here you go. In the Mishnah inside, just I'll read the words again and translate them. Biyasa or Chalitzasa, whether the brother of Mr. A decides to actually sleep with her doing Yibum, or to do Chalitza from Me'achav Shalrishon, from the first brothers of the first guy, Mr. A, Poter Sarasa, besides for being just perfectly acceptable, also exempts the co-wives from any further activity or Zika. They're free to go. The Ein Havlad Mimenu Mamzer, more than that, says Rabbi Shimon, he says, why in the world should the child of Mr. A, when he comes back, be a mamzer? Or if Mr. A remarries her afterwards, again, that's forbidden, but why should he be a mamzer? Because they're, they're entitled to be married. It's not a mamzer situation on the rights level at all. We don't make mamzerim for nothing. Um, and so not mamzerim, but they're abundant, which are in a terrible situation. But again, the halacha's not like Rabbi Shimon. And finally, says Rabbi Shimon, if and this, the words are a little misleading. The words literally mean if she gets married without permission. Imnises, if she marries, shlobershus without permission. But the case here is actually that she did like even less of a bad thing, if you will. Meaning, if one witness comes, which is how I set it up up to now, so then she has to bring that witness to the bezin. The bezin has to say, listen, she's allowed to remarry. If two witnesses come and tell your husband's dead, like any woman who becomes a widow, she doesn't have to get explicit permission from the bezin to remarry. Her husband's dead and she can remarry as a widow. So the case here is, if she gets married without permission from the Bezdin, because she didn't need permission from the Bezdin, because she had two people come and tell her, your husband's dead, so she knew she was a widow. So therefore, she's like, there's no reason to Im- include all these like, penalties and set the bar so high, because she, what was she supposed to do? She's totally doing what any normal human being would do. She's a widow, she remarried, and like, why should she be punished? Circumstances are totally beyond her control. So if that's the case, Muteris Lachserlo, says Rabbi Shimon, um, she, since she's like totally had circumstances beyond her control, she should be permitted to go back to her first husband, says Rabbi Shimon. Um, but notwithstanding that he says that, the halacha is not like him. The halacha is, 
that the rabbis disagree, and they say whether you have one witness or two witnesses, we're not letting a woman who who you know has a second marriage, if you will, go back to her first husband, and therefore the luck will be that she may not go back to him, like we said in the beginning of the Mishnah.